Move into a time to uh, hear your word. Uh, Lord, we just pray for open hearts to receive the message that uh, will come to, th- come to us through these words this morning. And God, these are uh, words that have been passed down for a long time, words um, that hit all of us in a different way. Um, some of us are uh, excited to hear these words, excited to hear where you're leading us, where you're guiding us, uh, where you're asking us to go. Uh, Lord, some of us are suspicious of these words, uh, words that may have been used to coerce, words that have maybe used to uh, induce guilt. And so, God, we look at them a little bit suspiciously. Lord, but we ask for your presence to be here this morning, for your spirit to give us uh, insight and to give us wisdom and to um, help us see the grace that your son came to give to this world. God, may your presence be here. Um, May the space that comes between the words of my mouth and the ears that are here this morning be a a space that's used by you to, to guide and empower our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I'd like to start this morning by asking you to take a, a little bit of a trip back in time with me. Not, not a really long time ago, but just a, a, few, a few years ago. And you know, it's kind of like obligatory whenever we take a trip back in time that we always remember them as better days, right? Uh, life was so much easier then. Things were easier to manage. Life didn't seem as busy or as complicated. It was better days. It's amazing how much nostalgia can really help us forget, isn't it? But let's take a trip back. Let's take a trip back to, uh, let's say if you were in middle school at the time, you would have been sporting a brand new Jansport backpack. Maybe it was even hot pink. Let's go back to a time where maybe if you were a mom, you had just gotten a brand new perm with curls held so tightly that no windstorm could ever move them. Uh, Let's move back to a time when uh, if you were a high school student, you were rocking a pair of denim overall jeans, obviously leaving one strap undone because that's how the cool kids did it. Will Smith and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, that's how he wore them. That's how I'm wearing them. Now let's, uh, let's meander over to a, a neighborhood, a local park, and let's walk up to a basketball court here where uh, we see a, a group of kids getting ready to play uh, maybe a three-on-three pickup game. And after they've split up into their teams, you know that it is obligatory for each person to choose their favorite basketball player who they will be in the upcoming game. And in the mid-90s, who did everybody want to be? That's right, Michael Jordan, his Aaroness himself. In 1992, uh, Gatorade launched one of its most famous commercials that featured uh, Michael Jordan. And the commercial was, was made up of shots of, of Jordan playing pickup basketball with some people at a local gym, interspersed with uh, these clips of live game footage of him uh, doing incredible dunks and, and hitting game-changing shots. And all the time, there's music underneath, and the music contains the lyrics, Like Mike, if I can be like Mike. Cut back to shots of a kid on a basketball court and the girl is clearly channeling MJ as she has her tongue hanging out as she moves towards the basketball in something that, you know, kind of vaguely remembers the uh, the jump man pose, right? And then cuts over to, to Jordan playing basketball with just a little kid. All the while, we continue to hear the line, like Mike, if I could be like Mike. Every aspiring or budding basketball player wanted to be like Mike. I mean, how many of you this morning 
How many of you here had a number 23 replica jersey? Or, or maybe you had the Sports Illustrated for Kids poster of Michael Jordan? Or maybe even a full-size Michael Jordan poster? You know, how many of you had a pair of Jumpman shorts or uh, had a pair of uh, Michael Jordan basketball shoes? Like Mike, if I could be like Mike. I was no exception from wanting to be like Mike either. Uh, I remember uh, growing up in the mid-90s, sitting on my front step with my little three-quarter size basketball, and uh, being both announcer and Michael Jordan himself, I would announce myself out on the court. And now for the Chicago Bulls, number 23... Michael Jordan, and I would jump up and I would run as fast as I could to the hoop where i complete my right-handed layup. But of course, in uh, the imagination of eight-year-old me, I had just dunked from the free throw line, right? In high school, my friends wanted to be like Mike. Um, a friend of mine, he would get a brand new pair of Michael Jordan basketball shoes for every basketball season, even though he spent more time sitting on the bench than actually playing. Another one of my friends loved Michael Jordan so much that he had a custom vinyl decal made that covered the whole back window of his car. And then when he turned 18, he actually got the Jumpman logo tattooed on his upper arm. My senior year of uh, basketball, I finally, uh, I bought a pair of Jordan basketball shoes myself. And once you know it, that was the year that I could finally consistently dunk. (laughs) Those shoes gave me the extra two inches that I needed to get there. Like Mike, if I could be like Mike, budding and aspiring basketball players wanted to be like him. They wanted to copy him. They wanted to watch what he was doing, turn into him, watch his every move. You know, you would think that, you know, maybe if I'm handling the ball and I stick my tongue out, that's going to give me the extra step that I need to blaze past the defender like they're standing still. Maybe if I lace it up in a pair of Jordans, I'm going to get those extra few inches that I need to complete the dunk. Maybe if I wear my number 23 replica Bulls jersey out on the playground with my friends, I'm going to stand out. I'm going to be a little bit better than they are. Like Mike, if I could be like Mike, that want and and that desire to be like someone, to emulate them, to copy them, to want to know what their moves are like, to do what they do, to wear what they do, well, this is how it worked in the first century for students who wanted to learn from a rabbi. And in essence, that's sort of how a rabbi would teach their students. There was a a popular saying at this time that would say, a student was to cover themselves in the dust of the rabbi. In other words, they were to follow that rabbi so closely that as he walked from place to place, the dust that his feet would kick up as he walked down the dirt road would, would cover the person behind them. The student was to watch their every move. The student was to see how they interacted with people and then try to interact with people in the same way. When that rabbi spoke, the the student was supposed to take in every single word, listen to how they phrased it, what words did they use, how did they pace their sentence. What the rabbi ate, they ate. Where the rabbi went, they went. Did everything they could to to cover themselves in the dust of the rabbi. And then the thought was that as you began to know who they were, began to copy who they were, that your heart would start to change to be like them. And as a rabbi in the first century, Jesus was no exception to the trends that were going on around him. But of course, being Jesus, there were always a few things that were just a little bit different. So this morning, let's, let's go there. Let's go into this place where, where Jesus goes out 
and calls his first disciples, seeing what he did that made him just a little bit different and seeing what that might mean for us sitting here this morning. So I invite you to uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4. It's on your flow sheets. It's also on the screen behind me. And let's read this first calling story of Jesus' first disciples. Matthew 4, uh, starting at verse 18. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Follow me, and I will turn you into fishermen who catch people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, he saw two older brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. And they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. When Jesus walks up to Peter and Andrew and James and John, he he comes at them and he starts with just a simple phrase, follow me. And follow me was a, a signal word at the time, a word that was used by rabbis to tell prospective students that they had been accepted, that they can now follow after them. Uh, follow me uh, literally meant walk after me, uh, continuously walk after me. So it, it's easy for us to see where this image of being covered in a rabbi's dust comes from, as they would just walk right behind uh, the rabbi. It was a word that signaled to prospective students that the rabbi was willing to, to mentor them, to train them, to, to be apprenticed, maybe even to go and live with them. And so when Jesus goes up to these two sets of brothers and says, follow me, he's not saying anything out of the ordinary that a rabbi wouldn't say. But like I said, Jesus does things just, he does things a little bit differently. The first unusual way that, that Jesus goes about uh, calling disciples is that, that Jesus goes out and actually recruits Peter and Andrew and James and John. There, there's no mention of these uh, four men asking Jesus if he, would be, if he would apprentice them, if he would mentor them. No, Jesus goes out and he recruits them. You know, you know typically students would have to go to the rabbi and ask for the privilege of being able to study under that person. And then the rabbi would have to think about it. But Jesus goes up and he recruits. To, to do this, to think about this, this, this whole like student asking the rabbi, it's because rabbis were, they're highly educated, they're prestigious, they're, they're like the lead guys in their community. Everyone looked up to them. To ask a rabbi to study with them and then be accepted by them, well, that'd be like the equivalent of, of asking Michael Jordan to be your personal basketball coach. And then finding out that Jordan has indeed found you to be worthy of his time and his knowledge. You know, being accepted by a rabbi is like the equivalent of, uh, of applying to Harvard and then receiving that letter in the mail that says, congratulations, you've been accepted to Harvard. As you know, we only accept 6.1% of the applicants who apply congratulations. To be accepted by a rabbi, to learn from them, to sit at their feet, meant that there was something about you that set you apart, something that made you a cut above the others, something that made you just a little bit better. 
But we don't see Jesus wading through a bunch of applicants trying to find the person who has the best resume or the person who is the most qualified for the job. If the first unusual feature is that Jesus goes out and he recruits people, the second unusual feature is that he goes out and he asks four fishermen to follow him. Four fishermen. Now there's a reason that Peter, Andrew, James, and John are fishermen by this point in their life. Uh, In a Jewish education system, uh, everyone had the opportunity to a very basic education until they simply needed to go work or, or care for the house or even to get married. And at this time, only boys had access to a really formal type of education. And in a Jewish system, the highest uh, form of education or the pinnacle of the education was that you would become uh, invested in t- the Torah or the Jewish, the Jewish law. Maybe a good way for us to think about it would be um, like reading through, the, being an Old Testament scholar. That was the pinnacle of Jewish education, that you were intensely studying the Torah. So the boys that had access to this formal education, they would start in this program, and they would learn, and they would be studying the Torah, but eventually some of them would get to a point where they couldn't keep up any longer. And so they were told to get a job. The brightest and the best continued, and eventually they got to the point where they could go ask a rabbi if they could follow in their steps. And in the Jewish culture, those who studied the Torah at that sort of level, at that sort of high educational level, well, they were seen as the ones who had the best form of worship. Studying Torah at that level was the highest and most widely regarded form of worship in the Jewish culture. In other words, those who were studying that, they were better than you, they were smarter than you, and doggone it, they could even worship better than you. And at some point along the way, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had all been told to get a job. They weren't good enough. They couldn't hold up. They weren't smart enough to continue. So they took up the trade of fishing. So we we have to kind of ask the question here this morning, why does Jesus choose fishermen to study under him? Why does Jesus choose these four average Joes? And and then later on in the Gospels, we see that Jesus chooses a bunch of other non-traditional disciples, uh, people that included a tax collector, a a religious zealot, a a doubter, uh, a blatant embezzler. He chooses these people who don't hold the qualifications that, that were typical in the Jewish culture. Why does Jesus choose fishermen? Let's hold on to that question for, for just a minute. And let's, let's finish out the, the verse, verse 19, where, where Jesus says, follow me. Let's finish out the last part where he says, uh, follow me and I will turn you into fishermen who catch people. Just before Jesus says these words in Matthew 4, uh, he, he kind of sets up what what his message is going to be. So in the verses just preceding this section, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near or the kingdom of heaven is close. In other words, my message is that I'm bringing in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is about reaching people. 
in order for this message to spread, it's got to go a lot further outside of just a bunch of scholars sitting around and talking about it. The message needs to be widespread. It's interesting uh, to note that when Jesus says these words, this come, follow me, and I will turn you into fishermen who catch people, in the, in the original Greek language, in the way that Matthew wrote this, the emphasis actually falls on the word people. That's the important thing to note here. Jesus' ministry was not about talking, it wasn't about studying, it was about reaching more people. That's what he came to do. And so he was going to find who he could to reach a large and diverse group of people. Uh, one of the commentators uh, I was reading this week, uh, he, he said this, Jesus is pictured here as uh, commandeering from what lies at hand rather than making a careful selection from candidates meeting some strict set of criteria. I like how the, uh, the commentator there uses the word commandeering. You know, it's like pirate language, you know, boating language, nautical themes. It fits in with this whole this whole fisherman theme that's going on in this passage. And do you think that it's really any coincidence that Jesus uses fishing images when he's talking to fishermen? No, absolutely not. Jesus meets them where they're at. He uses words and phrases that they would understand. And I think as uh, modern readers, modern people here today reading this passage, we have to be careful that we don't take this fishing metaphor too far. You know, I, I, I think that church people, people in the church, uh, we really love to talk about how the, the church is to create fishermen who go out and catch people, right? Like, we're going to sit here in church, we're going to take the hook, we're going to bait it with the gospel message, we're going to toss it out, and hopefully we catch some poor, unassuming, lost soul fish so we can yank them back in, get them in a church pew, and really give them what they need to hear. You know, or, or if you're like me, you grew up with that great kid song, Right? I will make you fishers of men, fishers, right? Remember this song? And those things are all great and good, but I think if we, if we focus so much on this metaphor, something is lost. And the more that I continue to, to, to read this and to think about what this means, the more I see if we just limit ourselves into this fishing metaphor, the greater chance we have to remove ourselves from what Jesus is asking us to do. Jesus says, follow me and I will turn you into fishermen who catch people. And he says this to fishermen. Something would have been lost had he gone up to Peter and Andrew and said, hey, follow me and I will turn you into healers of people. They weren't doctors. They would have no idea what he was talking about. It wouldn't have made sense. Something would have been lost on James and John had Jesus gone up to them and said, hey, come follow me and I will turn you into teachers of people. You know, they're going to look at each other and be like, I failed school. You failed school. He wants us to teach people? <laughs> this guy is nuts. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, come follow me and I'll turn you into fishermen who catch people. He talks to them where they are. He meets them in the job, the vocation, the skills, the trade that he has, and he invites them to be part of his greater mission. The fishing metaphor made sense for them. But how much sense does it make for us? Does the fishing metaphor really make that much sense for us? Now, 
Now, I know that some of you here are fishermen. You know, you take your trips to Canada to go white water, black angle fish. I don't know, whatever you guys do. You go to Florida, you sit on the beach and you catch sharks, those sort of things. <laughs> but I don't think any of us know what it's like to be a commercial fisherman. And no, being a fan of the deadliest catch does not count. None of us really know what it was like to be a commercial fisherman in the first century A.D. That's lost on us. It doesn't quite connect with who we are. So what is Jesus saying here that that makes sense to us? Well, he goes to the fishermen and he gives them terms and languages and metaphors that that make sense to them. In the same way, that's, that's what he says to us. He doesn't come at us and ask us to do something that's so completely foreign to us that we have no ability to do it. You know, so often, you know, we, we hear about spreading the gospel message and the first kind of response is, I don't have the education for that. I don't, I don't know the Bible well enough. I, I'm not a pa- I can't stand up in front of people and tell them what, what the Bible says. I'm not qualified to, to do this. I'm not qualified to be a gospel messenger. But isn't it interesting to see in this passage, isn't it interesting to note that Jesus makes no qualification? He doesn't ask them to go to a bunch of schooling so they can know how to do it. He simply says, use the gifts and the skills and the talents, use the job that you work to be a gospel messenger. So we go back to that first question. Why does Jesus choose fishermen? Jesus chooses fishermen because what he's coming in to do is about reaching people. It doesn't matter that they weren't highly trained because they had their own sets of skills, talents, training that would lead them just to connect with people. It made them common. It made them able just to talk about the gospel message and what it was and how it affected them. Jesus was inviting them to be a gospel messenger with who they were. That's what Jesus is saying to us this morning too. He's not asking us to have all the right education. He's not asking us to meet a series of qualifications. He's simply saying, you have training, you have talents, you have hobbies, you have a job that you work, and you can use all of those things to be my gospel messenger. Whether you're a a nurse, a chemist, a truck driver, whether you're a mom, a dad, a student, You can use all of those things to make a connecting point with people. You don't need to know it all. You simply just need to live into what I'm asking you to do. It's interesting. um, In the passage at the end, right? Or both times, it says that both sets of brothers immediately left what they were doing to go follow Jesus. Right? Jesus gives them a call and uh, immediately they left. Doesn't the text make it seem easy? Like, yeah, Jesus walks up and says, hey guys, let's go do this. Yep, cool, it's good, let's do it. But these guys had a decision to make. They had a a vital, life-changing, monumental decision to make at that time. Were they going to get out of their boat? Or were they going to stay where it was safe and convenient and comfortable? Peter and Andrew had to make the decision. Am I going to leave my daily routine? Am I going to leave behind my current affairs? Am I going to leave 
kind of what I know to be my primary source of income. James and John had to ask those same questions too. Am I prepared to kind of get out of my daily routine? Am I prepared to leave behind some of my current state of affairs to follow Jesus? And James and John, there was something even more that they had to go through. Did you notice that they're sitting in a boat with their father? They're part of the family business. Jesus, in a sense, is asking them to leave that business behind. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm asking you to follow me. I'm asking you to go somewhere. I'm asking you to go places that maybe your family doesn't want you to go. I'm asking you to leave behind what your family might think would be your best interest. And I'm asking you to trust me. Would they get out of the boat or were they going to stay there? They got out of the boat. The reason these guys get out of the boat is because when Jesus calls them to follow him, he also accompanies it with a promise. The promise is found in that short little phrase, I will turn you into. The promise is that Jesus is going to do the work. Jesus is going to be the transforming agent. Jesus isn't asking them to change the hearts of the people. He's simply asking them to be messengers for him. That's how Jesus works. I come to you. Jesus comes to you first and says, follow me and I will turn you. I will change your heart. I will make you into a gospel messenger. The call is accompanied by the promise. So there's the decision to make. I once, uh, I once heard it said that it's, it's a better answer to say no to God than to say maybe. Because if you say no to God, you actually open up a lot of room for him to still come in and turn things around. For instance, I once told God that I would never pastor a church in the greater Grand Rapids area. <laughs> Look how that worked out for me. I stand before you this morning having been here for almost four years. Telling God maybe though, it keeps God at a comfortable distance. God I like what you're saying. I like grace. I like what I'm hearing, but I'm not really sure that I'm ready to take that step. I'm not really sure that I can be a gospel messenger for you in what I do. Maybe, though. Let me think about it. I, let me tie some affairs up. You know, let me get some things kind of taken care of. But maybe. I'll come back to it. But you see, when Jesus calls the disciples... Maybe, maybe it's not an answer. Yes or no is what he's looking for. So as we wrap up this all-in series this morning, there's a decision that's left before us. If we're a follower of Christ, are we going to follow Christ? And are we going to live in to what he's asking of us, to be a gospel messenger? Jesus is not asking us to change his whole message. The message is the same. Go and make disciples, right? My mission is about making disciples, meeting more people, telling more people about the gospel. He's not asking us to redefine it. He's not asking us to start a new movement in the church. He's not asking anything crazy. He might be. I'm not going to rule that out. But for the most part, he's not asking anything crazy. He's asking you to simply be his gospel messenger with the training, the skills, the job, the place that he has put you. Because his mission is about making people. So the decision 
is before you this morning. Are you all in? I invite you to uh, stand up where you are uh, so I can pray for you in this upcoming week. Heavenly God, um, your words come through this morning. Um, somewhat refreshing, but Lord, but also that, that challenge that's in there um, of if we'll make those decisions to be a gospel messenger for you. And God, we acknowledge before you that um, that might be, seem scary, that might seem a little bit much to handle, uh, but we know that, that you made a decision for us too, Lord, that you could have sat at the right hand of your Father in the comfort of, of not entering this world and dying and rising, but you did that. You, you stepped into our world, you stepped into our mess, and you made a way for us. You went all in for us. Uh, so God, we heard the challenge laid out this morning that you're asking us to be disciples who make disciples, people who, who lean into the skills and the jobs and the hobbies and the gifts that you have given to us to reach more people for you. So God, uh, challenge us. Um, help us get out of our safety boat. Help us get out of the things that are comforting and convenient to us and help us to take those steps to, to love and to serve you, Lord, and to invite more people in to hear about your grace and your love. We pray this in your name. Amen.